Hey, Sam. Hello, hello. How are you, Teresa? My house is sort of falling apart. Every day for this past week, I've been woken up by literally my room shaking because there's construction outside. Uh. And today our water didn't work for like an hour and I really needed to pee and I couldn't go into someone's house because we're in a pandemic. So I just had to hold in my pee for like an hour. That's, not, that's really terrible. Yeah. That's how you're going through that. Yeah, we we fixed it now. You Yo. don't know what you had until you lost it. <laughs> I just took my um my last midterm of the semester. Um in international trade. It was uh one of the tougher experiences of like my last like couple months. <laughs> wow, that says a lot cuz I feel like these last couple months have been made up of no it was like so the our first question had like parts a through f so it was one parts a through f and so like you know when normally like part a is fine and then it gets like harder and harder so i like looked at part a and i was like i don't know what's going on it just went like through all the letters and it didn't get better a little bit of a tough test but if any of our listeners know about international trade um, different models and stuff hit me up I could I could really use the help <laughs> or someone hit you up I hope so wow well I'm glad that we're both going through it in different ways makes me feel like I'm not alone <laughs> um Anyways, I'm super excited for today's episode because we will be interviewing Isabel Sandoval over a cup of London Fog. Yeah, I'm super excited to jump into it. So for today's episode, I've chosen to make a London Fog because I feel like after drinking two and a half or three cups of coffee in the morning, I'm ready to move on to another drink. You know, I'm not ready to move on to sodas. Uh Uh-uh. I'm never ready for that. Not ready to move on to just water. I'm ready to move on to something that looks sort of like coffee, but is tea-based. And exactly what that is, actually, is a London Fog. So if y'all don't know, a London Fog is basically just an Earl Grey tea with some steamed milk. For people who like that sugary taste, you can add sugar, you can add vanilla extract, you can really spice it up however you want it to. But you know I'm bland, so I only like the steamed milk and the Earl Grey. And it honestly makes me feel like, it makes me feel important, you know? Like I'm the prime minister of a country and I am just sipping away my tea while meeting some diplomats. Mm, Yeah, I like the London Fog, to be honest. I wasn't expecting to like it, but it's like very like gentle feeling, you know? It's not the, like, I don't, I, I don't really drink coffee. Well, I go through stages where I drink coffee and I don't drink coffee. Um, Lately, I've been on, like, an anti-like caffeine thing because, I don't know, I've been, like, living healthy. I've been working out. I've been uh, not really, like, drinking any alcohol. I've been not drinking caffeine. 
not for any reason just because like all those things feel kind of like weird to do when you're just like inside all the time <laughs> at least for me because <laughs> it's like i feel like i associate all those activities with like actively doing things but that was a wild tangent uh <laughs> going back to the london fog definitely a yummy drink and like such a sick name like i mean the drink just wouldn't be as popular if it weren't for the name so shout out to whoever like named the drink I love how you really just took this and ran with it, trying to brag about how you think you're better than me. No, 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 that's not it. It's like, okay. I feel like being inside has like okay. forced me to be like healthier because then all I do otherwise, if I'm not being healthy, is like think about how I'm not being healthy. How did you know I haven't worked out in the last week? How did you know? Damn, that's crazy. The only way I deal with stress is to like um, breathe hard. <laughs> here's the thing though i have tried to work out but you know my knees a little bit um, oh yeah broken not broken but basically that one day one day multiple days where i was having a bad day this last semester um i was i'm like i'm gonna go on a run and then one block in my knee literally starts popping i look like an idiot and i have to start walking everyone on the street thinks i'm weak but i'm not no I'm, running has been like I, like, never used to run. I think I said this earlier on the podcast, but I, like, never used to run. Then I started running when I got to New York, and I was so slow. Not so slow, but I was, like, I remember I used to, like, bang out, like, 5.30 miles in high school. And uh, I got here, and I was, like, running eight-minute miles. And I was, like, okay, we can do better. And I've gotten it down to, like, 6.30. for how many miles? Just like a mile time down to six thirty, not like a oh, consistent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. No, it's it's still pretty slow. <laughs> but, I mean, it's nothing to brag about, but I mean, it's it's improvement. And then, like by the time I'm like done, if I keep like improving at this pace, I'll be down to like a five minute mile in two months. Then like down to like a a three thirty, and then just like set world records, you know. Y'all, if you follow me on Strava, you can tell which days I'm running out of anger and which days I'm running for exercise. Because this one day that was very bad, I usually hit like maybe 8.30 to 8.40 for two miles um, if my knee doesn't start cramping up. But this day, I literally ran eight minutes for two miles. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Wait, you ran two miles in eight minutes? Yes. No, no, no. Shut but up. I was like, what are you I talking about? Like, my split time was eight minutes. Okay, okay. For this day. That's a 40-second difference for two miles because I was so upset. Yeah, man. That's kind um, of crazy. Yeah, it's like your emotions impact your body. Crazy. Something like that. I thought you would be more impressed, but whatever. I mean, I feel like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my my mile time just depends on how motivated I am that day, to be honest. (laughs) But um, let us move on. I'm sure this is not a running podcast. Maybe we can start one of those at a later date. Um, But today we are interviewing the incredible director, not only director, actually, director writer, actor, producer, um, Isabella Sandoval. Um, We are super excited to have her on the podcast. And we are going to talk about her newest film, Lingua Franca. 
as well as kind of go back into the past and talk about some of the past work she's done. Yes, I'm so excited because I watched her movie, Lingo Franca, like two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. And I just thought it was so beautifully done. And also just like right now I'm taking both a film business class and a um, screenwriting class. And ever since taking those classes, I'm just realized how hard it is to do either of those things. And it's just incredible that she does all of the things very well. Like, I feel like it's hard to find someone who's sort of a jack of all trades who excels at each of their trade. And she does that, which I don't know how she does that. Yeah. Um, and I actually left something out of what the equation that I said before. She not only directs, writes, acts, and produces, she also edits. It's really rare to have a director direct and edit their own film. So I'm really excited to talk to her about kind of that distinction and what it's like to kind of see a vision through all the way. Because I think it's so rare that somebody's entire vision is kept throughout an entire film. Yeah. Um, and just to give you guys a little bit of a description of the movie, Lingo Franca is a movie about a woman who is a transgender Filipina. And basically, she is trying to obtain a green card. And she's also a caregiver um, for this older woman. And it largely basically tells the story of what it's like being an immigrant um, in Trump's America while dealing with these intersectional identities. Yeah, I'm super excited to get into the conversation. Uh, should we call her up right now? Yeah. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I loved your film. I thought that it was so awesome. And just, I was just amazed how you could do all of those things like acting, directing, and editing. I was like, wow. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I'm really drawn to films that kind of convey subtlety. Like I'm not a huge, like, mm -hmm. oh, this message is so obvious. So yeah. a lot of your film, um, relies on conveying messages through things that go unsaid. So what part, have there been any particular scenes or messages that were most difficult for you to convey through this medium? I feel like having made three feature films now and becoming more of a purely visual storyteller and filmmaker in that that actually makes the title Lingo Franca rather ironic. And I do use that ironically in the film in that the, the dictionary definition of the term is a shared or bridge language. And in the case of a Filipina woman and a Russian Jewish man, although it's technically American, they would communicate with each other through English, which would be the Lingo Franca. Mm. But in my film, it's actually the silences and the pauses and the gaps that carry more emotional and dramatic weight. And it's more revelatory of the emotional and psychological states of the character. Um, so making a film that was subtle, that's been 
my evolving aesthetic, I think, since I started making films, but I feel that it becomes more evident and palpable setting a film that's set in New York City. That's a big, um, you know, metropolis and with all with, with its distinct soundscape that might feel busier or more hectic or louder. But then I decided to tone all that down to have um, a sound design that feels a lot more intimate and quiet as a result. Yeah, I definitely like noticed that kind of intimate feeling to the film. Um, and kind of going off of Teresa's question, something that I wondered was, it seems like in this story there are so many, like I guess what could be started as political issues. And I know that like art and politics are obviously very intertwined, but how did you strike the balance between like trying to focus on those political issues and just telling the story in general? I think um, for me, thematically, my my films tend to be about women who are at some sort of disadvantage or who are marginalized in a certain way, who are forced to confront intensely private and personal conflicts and choices in a fraught socio-political setting or milieu. And in Lingo Franca, that's the escalating the air of escalating paranoia and anxiety surrounding ICE arrests and deportations. And I think I'm still able to really develop the characters in a way that's complex and has depth because of my approach um, towards the character and the setting is that the characters are very much influenced by and in Alex's case, are very much the product of their surroundings and their environment. Um, so Alex, being a Russian, third-generation Russian Jewish immigrant in the U.S., growing up around Brighton Beach, which is a community community that tends to be somewhat misogynistic or conservative and transphobic, those issues, I think, become interweaved into the narrative more organically in that sense. And um, yeah, that's just part of the character and the setting that they thrive in. Uh, Yeah, sorry if I'm like rambling, but yeah, I still very much focus on the characters and that they're character driven, but they do not exist in a vacuum. They exist in a setting that's very clearly defined socially, culturally, and politically. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm currently in a screenwriting class, and that's definitely something we learned, just how, like, your characters don't exist in a certain vacuum. And sometimes when I'm writing, I get kind of stuck on, like, the setting and, like, place when really it's, like, the characters that are driving the story and you can build the world around them, if that makes sense. Exactly. And I feel like, you know, as someone who belongs to a minority community in, in a number of ways, like, I'm a woman, I'm also a woman of color and a trans woman, and I'm an immigrant, I'm a lot more conscious and cognizant of, you know, matters like gender and race and citizenship status in the stories that I come up with, you know, and these are themes and issues that might be invisible to someone with 
privilege, you know, like white people don't really notice prejudice and discrimination as palpably and as consciously as someone like myself or other people of color do. Yeah, as a person of color, I think it's just sort of crazy to think that like some people just aren't aware of the things that we notice that are like so obvious. Um, Exactly. And so I know that a lot of your film um, kind of transpired because Trump took office and you know that really hardened on immigration regulations and the racism already in this country, et cetera. Um, But did you have any idea that you wanted to do a film like this even before Trump took office? Um, I started writing the film around 2015 as I was, you know, going through my gender transition. And at that time, it was more of a straightforward romantic drama where the main source of conflict was Olivia becoming romantically involved with a cisgender white man who is not aware that she's trans. But, you know, two-thirds into writing the script, that was when Trump got elected. And even though I lived in a very progressive city, I got plunged into a sort of emotional and existential crisis. I was definitely feeling a lot more vulnerable and tense and anxious and just paranoid about what would happen. And especially shortly after his inauguration, he implemented this travel ban prohibiting people from you know seven Middle Eastern countries from coming in, even though they had a visa and in some cases um, a green card. And I actually got my own green card as a U.S. permanent resident exactly a month before Trump got elected. So, you know, that whole period, I think the first six months of his presidency, it's like going through the seven stages of grief. I mean, there was a certain denial and just anger and frustration. And Lingo Franca is fundamentally a distillation of my emotional and psychological state during those first few months in that it's, you know, really predominantly the mood and the atmosphere of the film, even though we're we're being immersed in the life of Olivia as she goes through her daily chores and daily rituals, like in looking after Olga and in the process of, you know, falling in love with um, with someone like Alex. There's that tension hovering from the first frame to the last of the film. Yeah, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about, um, like, what you felt like the role of New York was in the movie. Like, it seemed like a very intentional choice. And like, I know you just asked about New York at the start of the um, call too. So what is that relationship, do you think? Yeah, um, it was definitely by design in that, you know, when we think about New York City or films and TV shows set in New York City, it's almost always either a very touristy vision of New York, um, shots of the Empire State Building or, Aerial, aerial shots of Manhattan skyscrapers. And having lived in New York, I know that New York City is not one monolith culturally. Uh, and especially having lived in the outer boroughs like Brooklyn and Queens, that's made up of diverse neighborhoods of various ethnic or immigrant communities. In Brooklyn alone, you know, 
there's the Orthodox Jewish communities that's community that's different from the Hasidic Jewish community. And there's also the Caribbean community. There's um, different um, Latinx communities as well as Italian Americans. And I wanted to show one neighborhood of New York that feels somewhat hidden or a secret New York. And I definitely feel that about Brighton Beach. Although I live in Crown Heights, which is you know, very white hipsterish and gentrified now. It's a lot like the Williamsburg and Lena Denham's girls on HBO. When if I take the Q train just half an hour down to Brian Beach, I feel like I'm being whisked off to a totally different country. And time period even, I feel like I'm going back to the fifties and sixties. Because as a neighborhood, it's so quaint. I feel like as a Russian as a group of Russian immigrants living in New York City, they very much retained their cultural identity and tradition and heritage. And I wanted to show a New York that's like that. And I also uh, made it a point that I'm opening and ending Lingo Franca with a montage of sceneries in, in Coney Island. And these images are very iconic in American culture and cinema, and I'm juxtaposing it with my character's voiceover in my native Cebuano. So it's like, with with the very first sequence of the film, I'm plunging the audience into an Amer a story set in America, but with a voice and the sensibility of a foreigner, and in this particular case, a Filipinx trans woman foreigner. Yeah, and I thought it was beautiful how you um, just highlighted the neighborhood of Brighton Beach. And just, like, I was, I showed um, a friend the trailer for the film, and yeah. within, like, 10 seconds, or probably sooner, like, a couple of seconds, they're like, oh, that's Brighton Beach. Like, it was just so clear in the way that you chose to highlight it, and I thought it was super beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah, kind of going off, like, this intersectional um, identity. So I know that you said that you didn't, or you didn't say here, but I read an interview that you said you didn't go to film school. So I guess at what point did you want to make intersectional identity themes inform your art? or And when did you realize you wanted to even dedicate your life to art? I think I've said before that you know, our we don't choose our passions, our passions choose us. And Ever since I was a kid, I felt like my natural mode of creative and artistic expression is through, when I was a kid, I would just come up with images and scenes play in my mind. And these scenes would connect to a different scenes. And, you know, when they're strung together, they form a narrative. And that's how I knew I'm a filmmaker and that I prefer to tell stories in a visual medium and when it comes to so I, but I did not go to film school because I felt that while cinema and telling stories through film feels like second nature to me if I studied under film teachers I would end up absorbing their philosophy their artistic philosophy and their worldview so to speak about what stories are valid, how to tell stories. 
And I didn't want to limit or circumscribe my growth and development as a filmmaker in that sense. Um, I wanted to be able to curate and create my own curricula as a student of film, so to speak. And I did that by exposing myself to a diverse range of films and not just American or Hollywood films, but films from Ozu, Kurosawa, uh, Truffaut, Chantal Ackerman, so world cinema, essentially. And as I grew older, my taste evolved and became more selective and sophisticated. And yeah, I owe it to the cinematic masters, how I learned to express myself uh, as a filmmaker through images and sounds. And I think with Lingo Franca, I'm now becoming an artist with enough confidence to have my own distinct singular vision. And even though I might have nods and homages in my films to the cinematic masters that influenced me, I'm able to transmute them and appropriate them in a way that feels distinctly mine and refreshingly original still. <laughs> Sorry if that's a long-winded answer. But I also wanted to touch on you know, the intersectional identity themes in my film. I, it comes naturally to me because, like I mentioned earlier, I write characters that do not exist in a vacuum, but they exist in a clearly defined setting and environment, culturally and politically. And yeah, that's just been my approach and that definitely informs the realism of the characters and the worlds that I tried to build in my films. Definitely. And kind of going back to what you were saying about the film school thing, about how you didn't want um, like these different perspectives to shape how you see film. Um, I know like you've been making films for a long time now and like I'm sure that you're very kind of ingrained in that whole festival world and that like, like how do you make sure to keep like fighting against those like very like white um like heteronormative perspectives that i'm sure the film world can be surrounded by at times yeah i think it's because i'm such a film snob that i i barely to be honest watched mainstream hollywood films um in the last 10 years uh i have not seen and an Avengers movie in its entirety. I know that's such a bad thing to say because, <laughs> but I watch a lot of European art house cinema and I've, with my three films so far, I've worked in an independent, in the independent space. And that's why I have a lot more creative freedom and autonomy to make films according to my own idiosyncratic vision as a storyteller, I've never felt the pressure to make films that pandered or that I had to like filter down the themes and perspective of my films to be more palatable, quote unquote, or accessible to a broader audience. I realized that moving forward, I do want to have a sustainable career um, that's financially viable and it's for me, the challenge now is striking, striking a delicate balance between having and keeping, protecting my unique 
aesthetic style and voice and just bringing in uh, a wider audience, like sort of not compromising my own voice while my films become more marketable to a wider audience. I think Jordan Peele did that excellently with Get Out and Us, and that's the kind of career, a career path that, you know, I'm considering. Yeah, I think that, I don't know, I feel like this is like an issue that I come across a lot in that like the films that I think have the most important stories, often when we interview directors, they're like, it's so hard to get funding. And then also like the films themselves are harder to understand for a more mainstream audience. Yes. How do you see yourself striking that balance between wanting to reach a broader audience for people who rarely get to see these stories, but also telling a story that feels truthful. Yeah, I'm trying to do that with my next feature, which you know, I'm very lucky and fortunate that, and although I'm not able to make an official announcement yet, as of last week, I'm being repped by a major Hollywood talent agency as a writer, director, and as an actor, and they're going to help me package and finance my next feature script. It's called Tropical Gothic. And it's my most ambitious feature so far. It's set in the 16th century in the Philippines in 1570, which is just a few years, very early in the Spanish colonial regime. So it's about a native priestess called Babaylan who pretends to be possessed by the spirit of her Spanish master's dead bride in order to psychologically manipulate him. And it has shades of Hitchcock's vertigo. Yeah, and that's something I decided to have the dialogue be in English for that one. Not because I wanted to pander to a broader audience, but because it is an allegory in colonialism and empiricism. And when we think about it today, the, the world superpower is the US and it's not Spain. And even myself, Growing up in the Philippines, I was taught and conditioned to think that English is the superior language. And it was, it's actually been the medium of instruction in Philippine schools and colleges in the beginning of the second half of the second uh, 20th century because the U.S. The US uh, colonized the Philippines from 1898 to 1945. So yeah, for, with this one, I feel like this is the kind of film that can really showcase my unique sensibility as a director. Um, I don't want it to feel like a stodgy and conventional period piece. I want it to be a film about obsession. And my goal is to make the most erotically charged film about colonialism without there actually being a sex scene in the film. And the fact that I'm getting it made in Hollywood also ensures that I, you know, I attract A-list talent to my scripts and, you know, elevates that. So I think I'm trying to carve a career as a filmmaker and in particular, an immigrant filmmaker in the U.S., by making ambitious 
adventurous and transcendent art that would attract also high profile talent. Yeah. That plot description doesn't sound at all like a stuffy period piece. That sounds yeah. awesome. <laughs> um, but I guess one other question we had was, have you always seen yourself as kind of a, a jack of all trades, like directing and writing and acting? Um, and is that something that you want to continue in the future? Or are you looking to focus more on one of them? I think of myself as an auteur, um, which means author pretty much. And in the last two months, as I've been promoting the film, the term auteur has gone from taking on a purely aesthetic dimension or aspect to it to one that's more political, given my status as a minority filmmaker and voice, making this particular type of film with Lingua Franca in our current political climate. And the reason that I took on all those roles with Lingua Franca and the fact that I didn't find them particularly challenging or intimidating was because I really had a clear vision of the film that I wanted to make from the outset. And it's actually those specific roles, writing, directing, playing the main protagonist, editing, and being co-producer are the most critical ones that would mean I translate my vision from the page to the screen faithfully and without compromise. Um, I consider uh, writing, directing, and editing still writing pretty much, but one happens in pre-production, one happens during production, and editing is really just writing during posts. And writer-directors tend to project themselves into the main protagonist. And that's definitely how I feel with Lingua Franca. And if there's, so I plan on continuing to do multiple, take on multiple hats creatively in my films moving forward. It might just be different configuration, like for, with, with Tropical Gothic, I'll definitely be writing and directing the film. I don't think I'll act in it because I feel that another actress would do a great, a better job in bringing the native priestess to life. Uh, I do want to play a vampire in 1940s Hollywood at some point. So that's another project that I'm, I'm developing. Uh, yeah, but if there's one important role that I would never give up and I and that I think is most important in the filmmaking process it is as an editor and part of me actually thinks that I'm doing the other things that I do on set like writing directing and acting it's because it gives it gives me as an editor exactly the right raw materials that I need to make in order to finish the film yeah um, but yeah, I conceive of my films as cut scenes that I edit together, and that's why I feel most at home editing. Sure. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, and I guess asking about the editing about uh, on Lingua Franca, how long was the rough cut? Like, how much did you have to end up trimming down? Um, I can say that the film really came together in post because. And it took about four months. 
from a very rough assembly to final cut. And while we were shooting the film, there was actually a subplot involving Olga, the grandmother. And again, in a very subtle and nuanced way about her having nightmares from the time in Ukraine before they immigrated to the U.S., which was then grappling with the aftermaths of um, the Holocaust. But when I looked at the scene as an editor on the, on the footage that we shot, I was just not sold on it emotionally. I didn't believe it. And I got into a few arguments with my cinematographer. The scenes looked great. They were exquisite and beautiful. But I told him, these do not work for the film that I now I'm realizing I want to make. And so we cut those scenes out. And what I can say, one, one pushback that I got from my collaborators in the film was editing my own film because it's not very common and it's rather unusual actually. But one thing I can say for myself is that I can have an emotional distance towards my own work and I can be completely impartial and self-critical uh, about it. And that's the only reason why I think it, me editing, editing the film worked out ultimately. So like when you're doing all this editing and being involved in every part of the process, how do you not be like overtly so self-critical of yourself? I feel like if I were so involved in every part of the process, I would just, I don't know, like watching myself and then like editing myself, I would just be like overwhelmed with kind of this third eye view of myself. <laughs> Again, it's, it goes back to that vision that you had for the film, the big picture, essentially, and just making sure that you're assembling and marshalling all the elements uh, to all these details and elements that eventually build up towards that big picture that you had envisioned. And yeah, that's how I did it. And it's so, so funny because I just acted in a short film by another director that I could never bring myself to watch but for some reason with my own work I can just be you know critical and objective and still get the work done <laughs> yeah that's really cool I could I could never imagine doing that personally I I made a short film with my friends actually this last summer and it was it's was painful it was really painful. <laughs> um but I saw that you have an MBA from NYU how does yes. the business background like help you? I'm I'm sure like you take on so many different hats, but um, you said you mentioned being a um, co-producer. How does that business background help you in marketing or, or anything that has to do with the film? Yeah, certainly, it it helped us in strategizing about festivals and working with sales agents in order to get the film distribution in different territories. You know. Um, in the U.S. and internationally. I actually, and also I think the reason why I pursued an MBA was it took me quite a while to come around to the idea that filmmaking can be a grown-up 
career. Um, yeah, and that's why I felt like I took a roundabout path towards really pursuing film. Uh, although while I was getting my MBA, I actually specialized not in finance, but in marketing and also media and entertainment. And that's how I was able to enroll in some film producing classes at Tisch at NYU. And I was part of a class that attended the Cannes Film Festival for a course. So it's helped me in that, like I also have a production company now that I'm able to approach the production from a strategic financial point of view in that, for example, with Lingo Franca, at one point, a budget for it was $1.5 million. When I looked at the line items that a producer made, some of these production items, like a very, you know, swanky catering table, <laughs> like just unnecessary items. And I negotiated to bring down the budget to less, just around 500 k and to strike a balance between it being just high enough to pay the cast and crew decently. We shot it over 16 days. And even though we had names like David Farron, who was in The Witcher, and then Cohen, who was in Sex in the City, Hunger Games, they attached themselves to the project, not for the paycheck, but because they believed in the material and they wanted to be involved. So striking a balance budget-wise between just being high enough to pay people, but also being low enough that I won't have investors breathing down my neck, you know, and telling me that we need to include this because we need the movie to make this much money. Um, and I feel like my gamble worked because the success of the film has allowed me to establish myself as an exciting new voice filmmaking voice in major festivals like Venice, but also cross over just enough to a wider public and in the film industry that a major Hollywood talent agency is recognizing my work. And it's also being talked about in the press and on social media. Did you expect your film to be on Netflix so soon? And has that changed the audience that you, I guess, expected to initially view your film? Um, to be honest, I feel like it's for the best that Lingua Franca got on streaming. Um, and not just during the pandemic, but because I feel like it's an intimate film that works well and it's better experienced in an intimate setting. Uh, it doesn't have those big, ostentatious emotions that you get from mainstream films or blockbusters, but it has, I'd say that it traffics in art house emotions <laughs> that are complex and layered and very subtle. And it takes some time, you know, hours or days to marinate and for you to fully grasp and appreciate you know, their depth and their complexity. And, you know, it's the kind of film that haunts and lingers 
and I think it's become more well known through word of mouth, really, and that people get to the film at the time that it needs to get them after their friends have seen it, for instance. I'm glad that people, there are a lot of letterboxed users that are writing about the film. And I think that's definitely one of the reasons why, like, it's reaching a wider audience. Totally, totally. Um, And then just the last question we have. Yes. um, What do you want people to take away from Lingua Franca? What I want people to take away from Lingua Franca is a deeper and more critical way to approach not just the themes of immigration and trans experience in the U.S., but to understand a woman like Olivia. And the film is ultimately an exercise in empathy in that it's subjective and impressionistic because it's not just giving a purely objective and realist view of these themes, but it places you in the mindset and in the emotional and psychological state of someone like Olivia, so that even though you're coming from a different background, you're a cisgender, you know, white, heterosexual person, that you're able to sympathize and empathize with what someone like Olivia is experiencing and going through. Yeah, that definitely comes through throughout the film. Thank um, you. Yeah, I think those are our main questions. Thank you so much for hopping um, on. Thank you so much, Teresa. Thank you, Sam. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks yeah. for having me on. <laughs> of course. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's episode of Two Virgins. We hope you enjoyed getting to know Isabel Sandoval and check out her film, Lingo Franca. You can find this episode on our website, quarantinecontent.com, or on our weekly newsletter, The Q. See you next week.